It's our one-year anniversary. One year doing this show. 52 episodes. And, of course, we bring you an extra special episode today for the 52nd episode. I want to tell you that I'm so happy I have this man because he is a plethora and a historian, an amazing person. He started his career at LIB all the way in New York through radio, and he did a lot of editorials and a lot of stuff. And, I mean, he's worked in the record industry, fancied and danced at some of the greatest clubs, heard some of the greatest DJs on the planet Earth in New York at the time when New York ruled the world before anything else existed, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I (laughs) I like to bring up our man... Mark Riley. Mark Riley, thank you for coming on True House Stories. And thank you for... Thank you for having me, man. It's a real honor, especially this is your first anniversary. And uh, thank you for keeping the story of the music alive. Because it's so important. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's not easy. It's not easy tracking everybody down. But because of COVID... I've been blessed to catch everyone around because normally mm. trying to get all these DJs to talk, including myself, we're all traveling and busy living life and trying to stay above water, whatever we're doing. It's yeah. like an interview. Okay. When is it? Where am I going to be <laughs> now with COVID? And now we're kind of coming out of COVID in a way. Of course, we want to ask you, how have you been dealing with COVID? Cause he's not in New York. Funny enough. He's in the UK. Yes. In and- Brighton. In Brighton, sunny old yeah. near the water. I know. Yeah, you. near the five minute walk to the beach. Played many times down there at the Zap Club, so I know the area. Yeah. Know yeah. The area. Nice, nice town. How yeah. are you handling COVID? What have you been doing the last, you know, you guys just come out of lockdown that's like Monday, basically, right? Yeah, I, I've really been kind of staying close to home. And, you know, uh, I'm diabetic, so I go out and bike six days a week. Uh, usually do a couple of circuits around a park that's nearby here. And uh, other than that, try, just trying to avoid catching it because uh, it's funny, Brighton's rates were very low to start. And then during the second lockdown, they skyrocketed. I mean, really skyrocketed. They started out with maybe 30, 40 people for every 100,000 residents. At the peak of the second lockdown, it was up to 778 people per 100,000 residents. Then it went right back down again, so it was very low. Now it's back up again. It's about 400 some odd per 100,000 residents, which is, you know, you got a lot of kids here because there's a lot of schools. And, you know, the kids really, I don't want to say they ignore the regulations or whatever, and now they don't have to worry about it because there are no regulations technically anymore. But, I, you know, if I go indoors, I wear a mask. Uh, and, you know, uh, we go to restaurants, which we do occasionally, my wife and I. Uh, we, you know, we try and keep ahead of the curve. So neither one of us, our daughter did have COVID uh, uh, early on, but she she managed to recover from it. She isolated, you know, she stayed in a, a, a B&B not far from here. So Knockwood, she turned out to, you know, had a, a, a relatively mild case. So how did you get from not catching it from her early on? How did you all figure this out? Because was she, did she have symptoms or was she 
symptomatic or non-symptomatic? She had mild symptoms. She tested herself. She came out positive and she immediately left our house and went and stayed in a hotel, essentially, until her quarantine period was over. And then she little by little got reacclimated. And, you know, after a while, she was fine. Oh, good. And thank God, of course, you didn't yes. get So, you know, because being a diabetic, this is the kind of thing it likes. Yeah, exactly. Likes so I'm very, very careful. And I would urge everybody, be very, very careful. I'm lucky I've had two shots. Uh, and, you know, I, I feel good about that. Um, but I still don't take any chances because right now there's a, a fairly large number of people um, who have been double vaccinated but still get COVID. It's not the heavy COVID. It's generally apparently not long COVID, but they still get the virus. A very popular guy over here named Andrew Marr, who does a, a public affairs show. And he was out for a week because he, after being uh, uh, what they call here double jab, he caught it. You know, so I'm I am very, very careful and knock wood. Thank God I haven't gotten. Good. Thank you again. And please stay safe on that note. You too. Yeah, I'm trying. Look, we're all trying. Absolutely. We're all trying to stay safe. We just don't know what to do. I mean, like, you know, the gates lifted in two months ago. Mm -hmm. And quietly the Delta variant. And I use the word Delta as in the capital D, has yeah. started to make its rise. Now, yeah. I, I look at some of the posts from people in our music industry, and they write things like this. X person has been completely double vaccinated, you know, double jab, whatever, but yet fully sick. Now yeah. what? Question mark. Now what do we do? Because they led us all to believe that the comfort zone would be if, you, if you're vaccinated, you're all you're right. Good. Yeah. Now, here's the gray area, the little fine print. You know, they, they, the commercial goes like this. Like, it goes real fast. Yeah. The fine yeah. print is this. Wear your mask. Be careful. Don't go around people. Stay inside. It's like, you know, what do we do? You know, not live. Well, you know what, though? Um, what people are saying about the Delta variant over here is that, yeah, it's because like 90% of the people that get it here are getting the Delta variant now. But it's not. It doesn't usually end up in hospitalizations and very rarely ends up in death. Yeah, uh, it, you know, COVID ain't no joke and it's not going to be fun for anybody. But at least it's not fatal like it was during the first and second waves here. So, you know, you got to be careful about it. You got to make sure you, you take your proper care. I've been getting uh, these masks, the KN95 or what they call FFP2 masks. They're very, very good. The only problem with them is they're disposable, which isn't good for the environment. But I just the other day, my wife recommended some triple uh, uh, triple layer masks that uh, I've been using now for the last day or so. And they're reusable. And they're breathable, which is also... A oh, no, that's the thing. You feel like you're suffocating in the KN95s. Yeah, yeah, you do. Sounds like you're like you're safe. Yep. Please, I don't want the force. It sounds like after a while you're talking to somebody. What'd you say? I can't hear you. You know, that's just after a while you're like, I hate this mess. But we who are smart did what we had to do 
to help to get through and help others not get sick. That was the key, you know. Well, you know, I, I, I'm double jeopardized because um, my American accent makes it difficult for people to understand what the hell I'm saying in the first place. <laughs> and with a mask on, it's like, you know, I go in the supermarket and I ask for something. Like the other day, I was looking to find some coconut cream. And they, what? <laughs> coconut cream? Huh? It, but it's, it's, it's one of the slight problems with living on the I know. I know. Well, welcome to True House Stories, of course, Mark. Well, thank you. Let's get right into it. So as everybody knows, I asked the first question. I'm going to let you get your paintbrush out because it's your life. And you're going to tell us <laughs> step by step how this all rolled out. Of course, I followed you as a fan and I followed you for a long time and knew you in the industry and knew what you did. And I was blessed to, you know, those that know I did the BBC six radio yeah, uh, yeah. story, Legends of the Dance Floor. The Larry LeVan story, and we were blessed through Michael the Benedictus, who had a cassette of when Larry T. Scott and Jellybean were together on his show. They lent it to me, and I was able to use it. Use it, yeah. There wasn't yeah. many many things with Larry talking, so I know you had him on a very very rare appearance. But we'll get to that later. So, yeah. which is why I always wanted to get Mark on a show. But this show has now graced the fact that I can bring him onto the show to get us to that point. But to bring us back to how his roots began. So, of course, here we go. How does, how do you find the music or how does the music find you as a young kid? You know, where does it begin for you? Everybody has their start. Well, you know, it was a long and winding road for me. Um, I used to, when I was really small, listen to the radio a lot. Um, and back then there was a station called WMGM. That used to have a top top twenty countdown every night. So you know, I used to listen to stuff. It was popish stuff back then. Um, but I really got bonded with radio because I was when I was about six or seven years old. Um, I went to breakfast one morning and my mother made a bowl of oatmeal. I hate oatmeal to this day. I hate oatmeal. So I told her I wasn't going to eat it, which was a, a huge act of defiance on my part. So my mother said, you will sit here until you eat that oatmeal. I'm not throwing it out. You're going to eat it. So I sat there from 7.30 that morning until 5.30. The milk had curdled by the time she you know, sent me to bed with no stuffing. But the only thing I had was a radio. She left the radio on the kitchen table so I could listen to radio all day. That's all I did other than go to the bathroom. So I kind of you know, fell in love with the medium on that level. And as I got a little bit older, my older brother, Clayton, uh, was a jazz aficionado. And he had a really good sound system in his house. So I used to go to his house and, you know, we would listen to jazz, we'd listen to R&B, we'd listen to a bunch of different, you know, types of music. And uh, later on, he turned me on to something that I, uh, I'll never forget him, but we'll get to that later. Um, fast forward, I went to college in New York. I was living in Connecticut. I was raised in Connecticut. And I went to college uh, at NYU. And uh, in my spare time, when I wasn't out trying to take over buildings and doing all kinds of radical stuff, I would go to a place on St. Mark's Place, directly below the Electric Circus. And I, I mean, I used to go to Electric, Cir uh, electric Circus to see rock shows back in the day. 
But underneath there was a place called the Dome. And the Dome was this kind of small, very crowded, very cramped kind of space. But it had the most wonderful jukebox you would ever want to hear. And uh, it was actually the only club I ever went to that didn't have a DJ. They just had this. And, of course, you kept having to put a quarter in to hear a song. So they made a fortune when, they, you know, when it got crowded, when college kids were home on vacation. And there were a number of songs that really kind of stuck in my mind from that period, including one that I just listened to earlier this afternoon. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this song, uh, Lenny. It's called My Lucky Day by a guy named Frankie Newsom. No, I don't know that song. You check it out if you ever get a chance. It's a great piece of music. And it, it, the people at the Dome were, were not demonstrative. But that was his, when they played that song, and they play it two or three times a night, that was the song that people would get demonstrative about. Uh, and, you know, you listen to that kind of music. And then, of course, there was also house parties. I worked in the post office for a while. And I worked like five at night to one thirty in the morning. And the people that I hung out with back then in the post office used to give house parties after work. So we would go like up to Tremont Avenue in the Bronx at two o'clock in the morning and dance and guys would play cards. It was a whole scene, you know, and it was postal people. And little by little, you know, you get these different influences, you get these different pieces of music that get stuck in your head. And there used to be a, a record store. I used to live on 170th Street in the Bronx. There was a record store right off of Jerome Avenue that had like an encyclopedic uh, catalog of 45s. So I would go and, and take the WWRL top, whatever it was, and go into the store and buy the ones I really liked. And that was something I got into the habit of doing. And, you know, there were people in the post office that used to do essentially the same thing. There was a guy who got to be a very good friend of mine. His name was Merlin Langley. And he used to call him smooth because he was the, one of the greatest dancers I ever saw before I went to the law. Right. And smooth used to come to these parties. And when he came, everybody else cleaned off the dance floor. They would not get near him when he was dancing because he was that good. And, you know, then there came a point at which I decided to try and widen my horizons a little bit. And I was hanging out with a bunch of guys on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And um, I don't know if you know Arnie Segarra, but Arnie later on in life turned out to be a good friend. Of mine. He had a club on, I think it was 77th Street in Manhattan. Really she-she kind of place. And me and some of my friends from the West Side used to all go in there, sneak in <laughs> to his club and party. And when I told him about it later on, I said, Arnie, you know, I used to go to your club. You couldn't have gotten in my club. And I said, yeah, we did. <laughs> we managed to, you know, talk people in. Somebody I, I got with in, but we danced, we drank, and everything else. Everything <laughs> else. And then uh, these guys on the West Side ended up wanting to follow a guy named Alfie Davidson. I don't know if you ever knew him. Name I know because he played at the Jungle, right? Or something. Yeah, he played at the Jungle. He played at a place called the Contiki. He played at a place called the Steps. And before I went to the loft, I thought Alfie was the greatest DJ I have ever heard. He took one night, and I'll never forget this, uh, he took uh, a Barry White song, Under the Influence of Love, got it to a certain point in that song 
and then seamlessly went to Stevie Wonder's Living for the City. And when they got to the part where, uh, uh, you know, the character gets locked up, he went back to Under the Influence of Love. It was an absolutely gorgeous mix. And Alfie, I think, was one of the great unsung DJs, early DJs. And he was also tight with David, which I didn't know at the time, David Mancuso. So, you know, Alfie used to play a lot of really cutting-edge stuff. And one night, he played this song by this guy named Mano DeBango. And it was so Makosa. And we were all like, oh, man, how do we get this song? Because it wasn't, like, readily available, right? So somebody found out that Alfie and David had gotten it in Brooklyn someplace, right? So me and a bunch of friends of mine jumped in this guy. He had a convertible. I'll never forget this. We go speeding down the FDR Drive, head over to Brooklyn Bridge, go out to, I think it was Crown Heights, uh, and picked up every copy of Soma Costa that was available. And then later on, a couple of other people bootlegged Soma Costa, so it was more widely available. It got to be very popular. But wait, you went and picked them all up. What did you do with the copies? I don't know. Everybody kept one. Oh, so basically you guys all had it for yourselves. Not like you went and yeah. go, you went and not like go run and give one to such DJ or Nikki Sienna. No, no, no. We, we didn't know any of those people then. This okay. was just among this crew on the West Side. This was a, the only DJ we knew back then other than Alfie, and we didn't know him. We just followed him. But there was a guy named George Wheeler whose father used to have a restaurant on 109th Street and Broadway called the IDL. Latin restaurant. And it was a really nice place. And he was really cool with, I mean, because we were kind of a ragtag bunch of guys back then. But he was always very cool, welcomed us in. And we got to know George. So we went and, and uh, you know, checked him out uh, a few times when he was playing. I always associate him with a song called Undecided Love by the Checkers. You ever heard that by the Checkers? That, that I know. That song. I know. That I know. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know for a lot of people, this is a, like, uh, we might as well be talking Sanskrit because this is some really old music. That's just but, records, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there, there was a lot of stuff like that. There was stuff that came like completely off the wall. Um, <laughs> did you ever hear Cat Mother and the All Night Newsboys? Yes. Tracking A? That was another song that was in those clubs at that time. Uh, the only song or the only album that was produced by Jimi Hendrix, but he did not play on it. He died actually a year after it came out. Um, but there was a lot, there was, uh, there was rock stuff. There was, you know, straight up R and B stuff. There was a lot of different types of music and the best mixers, the best DJs at that time were the ones who got a hold of this cutting edge stuff and made it work in their clubs. And one night, I guess it had to have been 72, maybe 73, somewhere in there. Somebody said, listen, there's a place down on 43rd Street. You got to go check it out. It's called The Sanctuary. And I said, the Sanctuary? I don't know anything about The Sanctuary. And it turned out it was in a deconsecrated church on 43rd Street off of 9th Avenue. And the DJ was Francis Grasso, who was an iconic figure in his time. I mean, Francis was just an extraordinary DJ and, and also had... Uh, a really fantastic sense of what moved an audience. And, you know, he would he set up his booth underneath a stained glass window. So when the light would come in early in the morning, it looked like Jesus Christ was playing breakfast. 
<laughs> it was it was extraordinary. Um, I was there the last night it was open. And for whatever reason, I'm not going to get into. I'm sitting there off to one side. And all of a sudden, these guys come in with these yellow outfits on and gas masks on their faces. So I'm thinking like, oh, man, these guys dressing up, you know, coming to hang out. This is deep. It was the fire department. <laughs> and they shut the club, you know. Uh, so that was pretty much the end of the sanctuary for me. Um, and then after a wee bit of drift, uh, I ran into a friend of mine who told me about the loft. He was a member at the loft. Now I had heard about the loft, but I had also heard, don't even try and go down there and find the place. If you're not a member, you'll never get in. Don't try and get in with somebody who's a member as a guest because they'll find you out there. You know, it was considered at that time very, very exclusive place. So this friend of mine, Mark Newman, said to me, listen, uh, if you want to go, we'll go down one night. So we went to uh, a, fr a mutual friend, a guy named Vincent Robinson, who was also very close to David, passed away very young, one of those fashion guys. So we sat around and listened to music till about 1.30 in the morning. And then I got the lecture. All right. The lecture went somewhat as follows. Uh, this is a club where there are large numbers of gay people. Do you have a problem with gay people? I said, no, of course not. You know, because I didn't. Um, yeah, but so remember, hang on one second. Everyone remember, this is the early 70s. Yeah, yeah. So you saying the question, you know, Stonewall was not that long before. Yeah, you're right. Fresh, you know. Yeah, and I understand them asking that question. Oh yeah. Gay people lived in normal neighborhoods. Let's just say normally they assimilated in neighborhoods where, say, it was suburban, but you didn't know they were gay. They kept it very quiet until they, they left. Were closeted, very, very closeted. So that's what he's saying. They, they listen to him. Say they asked the question again. Go ahead. Do you well, have? A said, look, if you have a problem with gay people, and you know how they put it, Lenny, it was interesting. They said, listen. You're going to see men dancing with men and women dancing with women, which at that time was utterly unheard of. Right. All right. Because it wasn't until 1971 that that was legalized in New York. That's why. At one time, there was, I know this is deep for a lot of people, but at one time there was a law in New York that same sex dancing was illegal. That's correct. Locked up for that. So when they said you're going to see men dancing with men and women dancing with women, it didn't phase me. But I said, no, I, I don't have a problem with Because I said, like, if you have a problem, forget I invited you. <laughs> I said, no, no, I want to go. Who gave um, you this lecture? Was that Vincent? You said Vincent, uh, David's friend gave you this lecture? The lecture? Yeah, that Vincent and Mark. I yeah. love the lecture. I remember getting the same lecture when we went to the garage. The same yeah, lecture. Yeah, same kind of lecture. <laughs> we went down to this place. It was on Prince Street then. I never went to 647 Broadway. But we went down to Prince Street, we got inside, and suddenly I had this epiphany. Like, this was the place I had always been looking for. Because the music, first of all, sounded wonderful. The sound system, you could hear everything. And the people, it was a complete United Nations of people, black, 
white, straight, gay, Latino, Asian, you name it, they were all there. And Prince Street was had, had a pretty good-sized dance floor. So it was all these people, and when certain pieces of music were played, the crowd would just go off. And I had not seen that before. The Dome and other places, even Alfie, they were not demonstrative people. You know, the people that hung out at Contiki or some of these other places, they were, uh, they put an emphasis on being demure. The women used to wear pillbox hats with veils and stuff like that. Well, the loft was a complete 360. It was a uh, 180, I think. Uh, people danced, people jumped around, people screamed. And I said to myself, this is my place. This is the place I've been looking for. So... Everybody just want to say this. When he mentions, here's the whole sound system. Yeah. Imagine an AM radio. You're playing AM music, AM radio. Just mm. And then you learn FM radio is created with this crystal clear sound. Yep. That's the difference of what he's talking about. Like you walk in, it was like Technicolor. And I've yeah. heard it so many times from everyone that's went has said the same thing. Like Technicolor. You can hear yep. that. Technicolor. Visually. And sonically, it was like night and day. So I went that first time. And then I'm trying to think, like, how do I get a membership? <laughs> yeah, I mean, how, how can I do this on a more regular basis? So Mark and Vincent put me up for membership. And I thought, well, you know, they probably got a list as long as your arm and da 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 About... A month, month and a half later, I get this envelope in the mail, open it up, and there's my loft card. I was ready to give a party just getting the card. I mean, it was just like, it was heaven. It was absolute heaven. So I went for uh, a few years. And see, this is where, because I tried to silo my radio work which was about reporting and interviewing people and that sort of thing. Silo that away from my underground life, okay? Because I didn't necessarily want the two to mix. But at that time, they were hassling David like crazy down in Soho. They wanted him out. And there was a group called the Soho Artists Association. And they, I mean, they had a newsletter, gangsters and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all these thuggish people coming. Nothing could have been further from the truth, but they saw the potential, the commercial potential of Soho. Because Soho wasn't what it is now, then. It was just starting to get popular. A lot of artists living in Lost, who, by the way, were living there illegally, quiet as it's kept. But as it turned out, the Department of Consumer Affairs, and I found this out from a friend of mine whose cousin ran the Department of Consumer Affairs, and they were having a hearing about, not just about the law, but about venues in Soho, which included a bunch of other scenes, all right? There was a, a jazz scene, a jazz law scene in Soho, uh, run by a guy named Rashid Ali, which they didn't have a problem with him, but they really did have a serious problem with the law. So I, go, I went as a reporter and went to this hearing, and sat there for so had to have been two hours listening to these people badmouth the law. And I realized very early on, none of them actually had ever been there. 
So I figured, let me step up and say, I said, excuse me, uh, I'm from WLIB, blah, blah. Have any of you actually ever been inside the law? And the answer? Crickets is what what the answer. Nobody had gone inside the law. (laughs) Now, what's interesting is that hearing, the, the hearings trying to get at the law back then, were the longest hearings at the time in the history of the Department of Consumer Affairs. And at the end of it, they essentially ruled that David did not have to have a cabaret license. And, you know, it's only been, what, a couple of years ago that they kind of let, let go of the cabaret licenses a little. Cabaret licenses, for those of you who don't know, were used to, uh, I, I guess, oppress people they considered to be undesirable, including, by the way, Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday could not perform in a club that had a cabaret license because she had a drug conviction. And that's how they use the cabaret licenses. So they, you know, uh, the Soho Artists Association was arguing that David needed a cabaret license and did not have one, and therefore he should be shut down. The Department of Consumer Affairs, after a very contentious series of hearings, ruled that David did not have to have a cabaret license. And the reason, yeah, and the reason was because uh, if you didn't have the money to attend, first of all, it was private. But if you did not have the money to attend, you could give them an IOU, and that was the reason why they didn't need a cabaret license. Because it was not money was not a precondition necessarily of entrance to the space, and uh, Penn Street went on for several years after that. 